is Jesus? That's the question we've been looking at in the Gospel of Mark. Who is Jesus? It's the question at the heart of this community as well. Uh, if Jesus is really the Son of God, uh, it changes everything. If he's not, it changes nothing. But although this is a question that's endured for millennia, a question that people globally still ask today, that doesn't mean it's the central question in every single person's life. Uh, for some, it's a question that they're not asking. For others, it's, it's a question they could care less about asking. A couple months ago, Julia and I had a dinner party, and uh, two of our friends were over who are ardent atheists, one more militant than the other. And uh, over the course of the night, we, we didn't bring it up, but they wanted to talk about God, and we were okay with that. And, and they wanted to talk about the existence of God, of course. And that was fine. And it was a fun conversation. And we talked, and we went back and forth, and it was really good. And after about an hour of it, uh, I just asked one friend candidly. And uh, I said, if, and I know this is a big God, but it, or if, you know, it's a big if. If there's a God, wouldn't you want to know? And he looked me square on in the eyes, and he said, No. I don't want to know. I, how do you explain that? He was sincere. I do not want to know either way. What do you even say to that? That's called unbelief. It's not skepticism or cynicism, although they may be present. It's, it's not certainty or doubts, even though uh, they might be present too. Uh, unbelief has this distinct flavor. It's different. <clears throat> unbelief, it's willful, it's deliberate. And in the passage we're in today, Mark chapter 6, 1 through 6, we encounter unbelief head on. And unbelief, it even inhibits Jesus and his ministry and even causes him to marvel. So here's the big idea I want us to explore this morning. Unbelief desires something other than what God gives. Whereas faith accepts what God has done. So open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1, and it's on page 717 of the Bible you were handed when you came into this room. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Mark writes, Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Uh, this is a pivot in the school of uh, apostleship for the 12. You'll recall in chapter 3, uh, Jesus called 12 people to be his apostles, and he gave them a twofold charge. One, you're called to be with me. Two, I'm going to send you out in my authority. And, but immediately after this literal mountaintop moment, he sends them back home. Uh, and it seems a little anticlimactic, but it, it wasn't. The apostles needed to learn that the calling of God takes them more fully into ordinary life. Life happens here, not out there somewhere. But the first thing that happens after this extraordinary call they've received is rejection and confrontation. You know, at the end of chapter 3, uh, the scribes accuse Jesus of being possessed by a demon. And Jesus' own family says, this man is out of his mind. And the gospel isn't always well received. And so the next chapter, Jesus teaches the apostles a parable to make sense of this. The parable of the sower. Some people, when they hear the word, they'll receive it. And, and many others won't. And he anchors them in a key uh, prophecy from Isaiah to make sense of this. Isaiah wrote, They may indeed see and not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. 
And Jesus, he wants them to hold on to this explanation because it's, it's this, this is the clue. This is how they all make sense of what they encounter as they're sent out into the world on his behalf. Some will see, but not see. Some will hear, but not hear. Others will turn and be forgiven. But then uh, we hit chapter 5, and it's really easy to forget about this because all these amazing things start happening. You know, they go uh, to foreign land. They go to the Gerasenes, and there a man who is beyond any help, utterly possessed, is healed, and it's amazing and astounding. And then they return home, and they hit the shores, and, and people are getting healed, and, and they even see a little girl from, rise from the dead. I mean, this is the stuff you want to hear about. This is the highlights. This is exciting. But then Mark says, they went away from all that. He writes, Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. You see, the disciples have encountered a whole bunch of things that are unfamiliar. They've gone to a foreign land. They've seen the miraculous. It's all unfamiliar, but now they're pulled right back into the familiar. And Mark notes, they're following him, though. It's a part of following Jesus, is being with him. Come and see. This also means, following Jesus means going wherever he leads us. And this is a crucial part of our uh, formation is sometimes Christ leads us more into the familiar, more into the places we call home, more into the city that we live in. Home, that's what comes up again in this passage. And honestly, there's nothing quite like returning home after a trip. You know, I'm not talking about a vacation cut short, but that euphoric feeling of when you're ready to come home. You know what I'm talking about? You get home and sleeping in your own bed on that first night or, or box bed. I know we've got some hipsters here or whatever it is you sleep on. Uh, you know, drinking your own coffee, uh, you know, getting back into the routines of your life. Like it's, a, it's almost like a blissful state that first week back from vacation. Jesus, he returns home and the first thing we find him doing, he's teaching at the synagogue on a Sabbath. You see, he's back into the rhythms and the practices of his life. Much like we're doing here, the ancient Jewish communities gathered on the Sabbath, which was a Saturday, to hear uh, the Torah explained and exposited, and they would sing hymns to God and they would worship. And so Jesus is teaching, and like many other times, people are astonished at what he's saying. And it's not that Jesus just had a way with words. Jesus had a way of opening up the scriptures of God in such a way that his wisdom blew people away. And we can hear echoes of the last time this happened. It was chapter 1, and people were amazed, and they said, what is this? A new teaching with authority. But the amazement, it's, it's short-lived in Jesus' hometown, as amazement often is. In his parable of the sower, Jesus talks about those who receive the word immediately with joy. Right? They're overcome with this experience, but then the receptivity is short-lived. You see, what Jesus taught is amazing. It can get us thinking and talking and pondering. And while the pursuit of Jesus can certainly overcome us with awe, that experience alone will never be enough. It will not sustain because Jesus isn't looking to dazzle us or amaze us. You know, see, if we make experience the primary way in which we pursue Jesus, our amazement will be short-lived. We will be seeking the next moment after the next moment. And over time, over time, we will start to define the quality of our pursuit of Jesus by how intense and recent 
your latest encounter with him was. And when we elevate experience above all else, ultimately our receptivity to the word of God will fizzle away because experience was never meant to deliver in that way. The people in Jesus' hometown, they they start off amazed, but it's short-lived. Mark writes in verses uh, 2 and 3, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? You see, rather than celebrate that Christ is with them, that Jesus is with them, the people of his hometown, they're cynical and skeptical. They don't trust uh, what Jesus is doing. They question his validity, and so they try to discredit his ministry altogether. Uh, You'll notice they don't even refer to Jesus by name, but instead they distance himself. They cast suspicion upon him. They ask, where did this man get these things? They insinuate, what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Sure, what he's saying and doing, it's impressive, but he isn't. And their skepticism is most evident in the next question. Isn't this the carpenter? The son of Mary? Aren't his brothers and sisters here? In other words, what is so special about him? We know who he is. We know his story. We know where he's from. And something that's easy for us to miss, is that identifying someone in the Jewish culture by uh, their mother was very uncommon. It's actually a slight. You were always identified your lineage by your father. And so maybe they're insulting him. Maybe they're just slighting him. Maybe they're being blatantly disrespectful. They might even be insinuating illegitimacy. This man, we know his family. We know Mary was pregnant before she got married to Joseph? What can he possibly tell us about God? You see, sometimes the familiar is too familiar. The people of Jesus' hometown, they think they know much about Jesus. They've watched him grow up. Uh, They can't receive what he has to say. And Mark writes at the end of verse 3 that they took offense at him. It could be translated that they were scandalized by him or uh, that they found him to be a stumbling block. This word scandal on it, it shows up eight times in Mark's gospel. And every time it's to show something that happens that keeps people from having faith and following Jesus. You see, they know Jesus and so they find what he's doing to be scandalous. To them, Jesus is being improper. He's out of line. He's out of place. He's shocking, and they find him offensive, and so they find him to be a stumbling block. They're tripping and stumbling over how familiar Jesus is to them. And Jesus, he he sees all this. He hears all of this, and he says in verse 4, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. It's an explanation that makes sense. I mean, if your sister or brother uh, started claiming they were a prophet sent from God and and had an itinerant touring ministry, it would be difficult to expect uh, to accept that. You know, especially if you're at like a family dinner and uh, it's time to wash the dishes and they're like, I have a prophecy from the Lord. You shall wash the dishes. You know, like this would be very difficult to accept. And especially if people you know started looking up to them and gawking at them, you would say, okay, yeah, maybe they're doing some good, but I know who they really are. I know who they really are. 
But with this proverb, Jesus, he's not just looking at his hometown saying, well, it's understandable. It's to be expected. Because the rejection that's happening to him doesn't just happen in his hometown. It's intensified in his hometown, but he's going to be rejected all throughout his gospel. He's already been rejected before this in the gospel. The problem that this passage exposes that is that we can get so caught up in what is familiar. They're so caught up in the, the man, Jesus, that they can't see the unfamiliar. They can't see that he's the son of God. You see, the rejection of Jesus in this passage, it highlights the offense of the incarnation. The incarnation is a fancy word for God becoming human. That's the stumbling block in this passage. They can't believe that Jesus is a prophet, let alone that he might be the son of God, God in the flesh. If we see the face of Jesus, do we also see the face of God? If we see the familiar human face, do we also see the unfamiliar divine face? Often the answer is no. Uh, Richard Dawkins, he's a famous uh, evolutionary biologist. Uh, he, he calls himself an atheist, but also an anti-theist, right? He's aggressive against the faith, and for, very, for his reasons. And uh, he was interviewed on the, the red chair on CNN. It was a very interesting interview. He was asked, uh, if you die and end up meeting God, and if you grant that possibility, what would you say to him? Great question. And Dawkins said, if I met God in that unlikely event after I die, I think the first thing I would say is, which one are you? Clever. Are you Zeus? Are you Thor? Are you Baal? Are you Mithras? Are you Yahweh? Which God are you? Why did you take such great pains to conceal yourself, to hide away from us? For many, the incarnation, it's too ordinary. It's too familiar. It's too human. It's too much like us. So much, in fact, that it doesn't seem helpful because it's, it's easy to relegate it to the corridors of, of history because Jesus was human. He's just another religious prophet. He's just another option among the many options that have happened throughout history. The truth is we don't want God to become human like us. The people of Nazareth, they see only a carpenter, only a son of Mary, only another one of the village children who've grown up. They could not believe that the one whose face they know so well, who has lived so long with them, eating and drinking and dressing like one of them, had any right to make any sort of claim that he was something more than what they are. And so we look at Jesus with the same sort of skepticism and the same sort of uh, cynicism. It can kick into high gear even. Incarnation, I mean, he's so small and insignificant. I mean, if God was going to prove his existence by incarnating, why become an ancient Palestinian Jew? I mean, at that time, it was literally one of the smallest religions on the planet in one of the most minuscule cities globally. It was of no importance. Why be so small and insignificant? Why not make a grand appearance through Caesar? And if God was only going to show up once, why record it in such an ancient and archaic way? Why don't you use a better technology? I mean, a book? Not even a book, but like papyrus scrolls? Really? Like, why not blow the ancients away? Like, hey, here's a hologram that people in 2,000 years are going to be like, there's a God. You know, why? We're not that different. We're not that different than the people who occupied Jesus' hometown. 
If God is going to reveal himself, we want something more dramatic, something bigger, a more convincing proof, which is why so many people say, like, no, there's no God. It's got to be something more than a man claiming to be God. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a great little book called The Screwtape Letters, which I finally got around to reading recently. And uh, it's hopefully a set of fictional letters that a demon writes to another demon. It's really fascinating. Uh, advising this demon on how to better deceive humans. I mean, this is like C.S. Lewis at his most creative best, writing some of the most terrifying things you'll ever read about what it means to be a human. And in one of the letters, uh, Screwtape, the, the elder demon, says, Humans find it all but impossible to believe in the unfamiliar while the familiar is before their eyes. What Screwtape meant was that if you keep humanity distracted with what's in front of them, they won't really worry about what they don't see. Keep them focused on the immediate, what they can see and touch and experience. But the point is apt. If the familiar is before our eyes, we find it almost impossible to believe in the unfamiliar. And you even see this in the scientific community. When a new discovery happens, for those so used to the familiar, you can see it through the history, they reject the new discovery. They can't accept the unfamiliar because they're so invested into the familiar. It's just a part of the human predicament. And so the answer to the question, God, why did you take such great pains to hide yourself, is I sent my son. I didn't hide myself. I made myself known. But we find that unsatisfactory. It shows that we want something other than what God gives to us. We want something bigger, something that will persuade. But even if we had something bigger, this is the misunderstanding. It wouldn't persuade us. Jesus himself says no miracle will persuade a hard heart. In Luke uh, chapter 16, 31, he says, look, people won't be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. They will find a way to explain it away. Another time in the Gospels, God spoke from the heavens. Jesus heard it and people around him heard it. To some, they heard a message. To others, they heard thunder. The greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept the God who condescends to us in only a carpenter, a son of Mary. And while the incarnation can be a stumbling block that we trip over, the actual issue is something else altogether. Look at uh, verse 5. Jesus could do no mighty work there. Jesus could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. This is a pretty shocking comment. Jesus could do no mighty work? You see, something is essential is required on both sides. For the patients, for those wanting healing, it's faith. For the, the physician, for the doctor, it's power. It's not that faith negates Christ's power. It's that God is not a God who will force himself upon people. Jesus is always saying, I only do what the Father says to do. And if faith is absent, the Father says, don't push it. Jesus, he has the power to heal. 
It's not totally inhibited. The passage says he still heals a few. But the sad part is that there could have been so much more that he desired to do a mighty work for his hometown, the people who grew up, the people he loves dearly. But they inhibited him with their unwillingness, their unbelief. Mark says, Jesus marveled at their unbelief. What amazes the Son of God in humanity is not our sinfulness. He's not baffled by our shortcomings or surprised by our brokenness or our propensity to do things that we know we ought not to do. What causes God in the person of Jesus to marvel at us is our hardness of heart, our willing unwillingness to believe in him. For those who are asking, where is God? The issue isn't God failing to act or make himself known. The issue is unbelief. It's a willful disposition, not an accidental one. It's a choice. I will not believe. It's a choice that demands proof, even if proof is staring you in the face. You see, unbelief, it can present itself as if it's an intellectually open position. I won't believe in what I can't see. I won't believe without proofs. But Time and time again, I've seen that unbelief is a dead end, not an open posture. Uh, when Julia and I lived in Florida, uh, this is what Florida always looks like, uh, my parents and my aunt and uncle got in the habit of, of coming down to Florida once a year to do a family vacation. It was great. And we'd usually hole up in a, in a Marriott somewhere in Florida and eat a lot of food and play cards. And uh, my family has this tradition where we just talk about all things controversial, like just pick something from the news, and we just debate. And uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian household. I didn't grow up in, with any faith. And so my faith is a bit of an anomaly uh, for my family. I was the first Christian in my entire extended family. Uh, and so one evening, uh, the topic of faith came up, which was a lot of fun for me. And uh, at the end of a very long conversation, I asked my dad and my uncle, what would it take for you to believe? What would it take? And they were quiet for a bit, and my dad said, a sign, some sort of sign in the sky. And my uncle's like, right, right, that sounds good. You know, like, they both sound like the Swedish chef. But uh, the next day, the very next day after this conversation, we're lazing around at the pool, and we look up in the sky, and there in the clouds, like, was this. Jesus, number four, gives. Clever, right? Jesus forgives. I got chills, and like up and down my spine. Like, and then like another cloud appeared that's like, the Bible is true. And we're like, what is happening? And so Julia and I say to my dad, like, this is your sign. Like, what more could you want? And then we noticed it was like a biplane skywriter who then wrote like, God plus you equals smiley face. It was very nice. Uh, now, three things happened. Three things happened. Julia had faith. Faith looks at a situation like this and says, look, God orchestrated all of this, all of it. He orchestrated the conversation last night. He's orchestrated this random person who like, thought it'd be a good idea to rent a, a skywriting plane and write simple gospel messages in the sky. He orchestrated that it would fly over the Marriott at the exact time we would be lying at the pool. Like, Julia had faith. This is God speaking and answering your request for a sign in the sky. I doubted. Doubt looks at this and says, that's pretty coincidental. I, I'll grant that, but I don't know. <laughs> like, it could be God. It's questionable. My dad and uncle had unbelief. There's no way that's God. It's too familiar. That's not what we meant. 
It's just a crazy skywriter with a lot of devotion for his religion. Do you see what's going on? Unbelief will only accept proof on its own terms. But it also deceives, even if you get the proof you asked for. Unbelief presents new reasons to continue on in disbelief. And that's how it works. But I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. Sometimes we mistake doubt for unbelief, and sometimes we mistake unbelief for doubt. But doubt is a natural thing within life and faith. Nobody, nobody in this room, including me, has perfect faith. Doubt, you know, we, we, we have struggles and, and questions, and doubt arises, and it's this wishful longing to be more sure of things in which we trust. You know, you might doubt, like when you read a really good critique of the inspiration of the scriptures and wish you understood more. You might doubt when you hear accusations about the historical reliability of your faith and might wish you knew more. Often doubt is accompanied with this desire just to know that God is more present when he seems so absent. And so if you have doubt, I want you to know, like, that's okay. Talk about it. Invite people into your doubt. Invite them to journey with you uh, through it. No one's free of doubt. And denying your doubt doesn't make it go away. and doesn't make your faith any stronger. Doubt is a part of the Christian journey. But doubt shouldn't be exalted any more than it should be shamed. Hear me on that. Doubt shouldn't be exalted any more than it should be shamed. Because left unchecked, doubt can become unbelief. Uh, there's a renowned theologian, uh, scientist, and apologist, Alistair McGrath. Uh, and he knows a thing or two about uh, asking tough questions and the challenge of living out your faith in today's world. He has a PhD in molecular biology and a PhD in theology. And he lives in the world where science and faith and debate intersect. And he's actually even debated uh, Richard Dawkins. And you can find that debate online. It's very good. And uh, he's even written a book in response to one of Dawkins' books. And so he's not shied away from difficult conversations and challenges that might produce doubt in his life. And so how does he keep such a vibrant faith when facing so much that could cause doubt and uncertainty? Here's what McGrath said. Feed your doubts and your faith will starve. But feed your faith and your doubts will starve. I mean, given his name, he must be right. Uh, but my name's Alistair. Nice to meet all of you. Uh, but he's not saying avoid doubt. He's just saying don't put all of your energy there. Don't exalt it and celebrate it. Recognize it. Talk about it. But build up your faith. Feed your faith. Why? Because doubt becomes a downward spiral if we feed it rather than nourish it or nourish our faith. If we make our doubts our sole focus, it can lead to unbelief because slowly and surely, the only thing we're certain about is our uncertainty. And this is the problem. Sometimes people who are celebrating doubt are actually celebrating unbelief. You see, unbelief is the decision, the choice, the determination to live your life as if there is no God. And your doubts now serve to justify that decision. There are no questions now. There are just periods, just facts and figures. But the root, and I'm convinced of this, the root of unbelief is knowing better than God. 
The people of Nazareth, they look at Jesus and say, who do you think you are? You're not good enough. You look at the incarnation, you say, it's not good enough. Or you look at the world and you say, if there's a God, why is there so much suffering? Or you look at scripture and you say, if this was written by God, it would be more impressive, more convincing. But what you're doing is you're taking whatever questions resonate with your doubts and constructing a small enough version of God so that it's easy to stand above him and not believe in that God. But here's the thing. Most of the people in this room probably don't believe in the God that you don't believe in. So what's the advantage of unbelief? Well, if we don't believe in a God, we can justify living however it is that we want to live. And that might not be explicitly evil. You might be a pretty decent person, but you don't have anyone speaking into your life in that capacity. You can live however you want. You see, only by denying God can we then have the permission to live as little gods, to do whatever it is we believe. And only by denying God can we do that without any conviction that we're committing treason or rebellion or anything immoral in the process. So unbelief, it is an explicit rejection of God, an explicit rejection of Jesus. And Mark tells us Jesus marvels at this. He marvels at this. He's marveling at the sin. He's marveling at the hardness of heart. He's marveling at the people who can't see that God is standing right in front of them. He's marveling at people trying to stand above him. He's marveling because all he wants is people to see and hear and turn and be forgiven. But in all his marveling, Jesus takes the rejection. He bears it because it's part and parcel of what he came to do. Jesus, he's not afraid of your unbelief. He's not. Because he doesn't have to prove himself to anyone. God doesn't have to prove himself to anyone if he's God. He is totally sufficient on his own. And if he's the triune God that we complain, uh, that we uh, preach, then he is sufficient in love as well. He doesn't need to prove himself to anyone. In the tale of Peter Pan, there's this iconic phrase. Uh, every time a, a child says, I don't believe in fairies, uh, there's a fairy somewhere that falls down dead. That's sad. <laughs> but it's a lot of pressure, right? <laughs> I don't believe in fairies. I don't believe in fairies. Uh, I'm a murderer. Uh, but <laughs> I love Peter Pan, obviously. And uh, but in time of crisis, in time of crisis in the book or in the movies, uh, the kids start to be like, I believe in fairies. You know, like, I do. I believe in fairies. You know, and uh, <clears throat> that's how it took place. I'm just reenacting. And slowly but surely, you know, like fairies are back. Tinkerbell, and I, I don't know any other, the other ones. Bob, <laughs> the fat fairy who can't fly. Uh, and so the fairies come back because the children believe hard enough. <laughs> but here's the thing. I blame Julia. This illustration was her idea. Uh, <coughs> I love you. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, but here's the thing. That's a children's story. Your belief has no power whatsoever over Jesus. Your belief has no power whatsoever over Jesus. And your belief has no power whatsoever whether or not God exists. If God exists, God exists. It's a one or a zero. It's binary. 
Which is why anytime someone says to you, I'm 99.9% .9 certain that God exists, I say, how did you come up with that formula? Because it's zero or 100. It's faith. Whether God exists or not, whether you believe there's a God or not, it is a faith statement. And if you have unbelief, the only power your unbelief has is to rob you of what Jesus wants to do in your life. No mighty work was possible in Nazareth. Not because it wasn't possible, but because the people had unbelief or were unwilling to even entertain the possibility that Christ might have something incredible to do within their hearts and their lives. And so Jesus marvels, and then he endures rejection. But he, he didn't just endure rejection from his family and his hometown and his, 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 uh, the people he grew up with. He goes on to endure rejection from his closest followers. Rejection will build and build and build until he's ultimately rejected on the cross. And there Christ bore our rejection of him. What does he say? Father, forgive them. Rejection is met with forgiveness. And so what's the remedy for unbelief? What's the remedy for unbelief? First, we've got to learn to pray, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. We sang this earlier. And it comes from Mark 9, where a man encounters Jesus, and he cries out, I believe, but help my unbelief. He cries out a prayer that's true for us all, that the heart's disposition is not uh, to believe. I know there's some interesting neuroscience that's looking for a faith gene to explain why some believe and some not, but the fundamental human condition is not disposed towards belief, but unbelief. And it's true for all of us, and if you don't see that tendency within your own heart, you're already in trouble. Even if you believe there's that pulling, that inclination, the doubts that persist, and that if you feed them, taunt you with why don't you let this all go? There's a more rational explanation. But if we choose belief, is it a matter of casting reason aside and clinging to a blind faith? No. No, the remedy is so much harder than that. It all comes back to Jesus' explanation of the sower. They indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they turn and be forgiven. You see, but you don't see. You hear, but you don't hear spiritual things. The only remedy is to turn and be forgiven. Repentance is the remedy for unbelief, not belief initially. Yes, I'm saying that repentance is the remedy for unbelief. You have to repent, which means not muster up some feigned feeling of guilt. Repent means to realign your perspective. But to do that, you have to admit that maybe your perspective has been off or distorted or even flat out wrong. You haven't seen clearly. You haven't heard clearly. And so you have to turn and ask to see. You have to turn and ask to hear. You have to even ask for faith. And I know, I know the fear that, that can come into the heart. Am I just shutting my brain off? Goodness, no. The Christian faith is always a faith seeking understanding. But our reason and understanding prior to faith can only take us so far. But I'm convinced the biggest leap is not the leap of faith, but the leap of repentance. 
Now, don't get me wrong. Belief underwrites our repentance. We wouldn't repent if we didn't believe there was some sort of God that we needed to turn and repent to. But it's repentance that leads us to say some of the most difficult things for us to say. I was wrong. I'm sorry. God, forgive me. That is the remedy toward unbelief. And how's your heart doing now? Do you believe that? Do you doubt that it's that simple? Or do you look at that and say, it's just it's foolishness? That is the posture that opens us up to the mighty works of Jesus. And when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, if we have faith, that mighty work can happen in our lives and it changes everything.